season of mists and mellow fruitfulness, close bosom friend of the maturing sun, conspiring with him how to load and bless with fruit the vines that round the thatch eaves run, to bend with apples the mossed cottage trees and fill all fruit with ripeness to the core, to swell the gourd and plump the hazel shells with a sweet kernel, to set budding more and still more later flowers for the bees, until they think warm days will never cease, for summer has o'erbrimmed their clammy cells. Who hath not seen thee oft amid thy store? Sometimes whoever seeks abroad may find thee sitting careless on a granary floor, thy hair soft lifted by the winnowing wind, or on a half-reaped furrow sound asleep, drowsed with the fume of poppies, while thy hook spares the next swathe and all its twined flowers. And sometimes, like a gleaner thou dost keep, steady thy laden head across a brook, or by a cider press with patient look, thou watchest the last oozings hours by hours. Where are the songs of spring? I, where are they? Think not of them, thou hast thy music too. While barred clouds bloom the soft dying day and touch the stubble plains with rosy hue, then, in a wailful choir, the small gnats mourn among the river sallows, borne aloft or sinking as the light wind lives or dies and full-grown lambs loud bleat from hilly born, hedge crickets sing, and now, with treble soft, the red-breast whistles from a garden croft, and gathering swallows twitter in the skies. Hello, and welcome to Words That Burn, a podcast about poetry. Each episode I read a poem, look at its inner workings, and hopefully show you what makes it tick. This week's poem is To Autumn by John Keats. Before I begin, I have a suggestion. Try to find a copy of the poem somewhere so that you can read along. There will be a link to one below in the description. It's October at the time of recording, and that means I can cover one of my all-time favourite poets here on the podcast. I am far from alone in that estimation. John Keats is considered one of the greatest English poets ever. Considering that he only spent 25 years here on Earth, that's a stunning achievement. Keats was part of a much broader romantic movement of English poetry. Romanticism was one of the largest artistic movements of the 17 and 1800s. It shaped prose, music, painting, and, of course, poetry. Right at the centre of this was John Keats. He was a key figure in the movement, and he's become a symbol of sorts for it over the years. This is in part due to his sheer skill in poetry, but also down to the stark tragedy that seemed to plague his life. When we speak of the Romantics and their poetry, we don't get far without the mention of the Romantic hero. The Romantic hero is one who, 
as academic Northrop Fry pointed out, is placed outside the structure of civilization and therefore represents the force of physical nature, amoral or ruthless, yet with a sense of power and often of leadership that society has impoverished itself by rejecting. On top of this style of rebellious individualism was a healthy dose of introspection and melancholy in equal measure. It's not hard to see how the Keats myth would grow to fit this larger-than-life shape. From the early days of his life, he seemed plagued by the spectre of misfortune. His father died by falling from a horse when John was very young. His mother then passed away from tuberculosis, or consumption, as it was known at the time. Tuberculosis seemed to be something that ran in the Keats family bloodline, also claiming his brother George, and finally Keats himself in 1821. This misfortune combined with chronic poverty and a traveling lifestyle bordering on nomadic made him seem every inch the living, breathing, romantic hero. However, far from being a melancholic misanthrope who craved solitude, Keats was adored by all who knew him. He was frequently hailed as the life of the party and one of the most amiable people on the English literary scene at that time. That's not to say that he lacked a solemnity all his own. Despite dying so young, by the end of his 25 short years, he was a poet and thinker of staggering maturity. By the time of this poem's writing, in 1819, Keats was tragically nearing the end of his life. He would succumb to tuberculosis and pass away just two years later, in 1821. We are lucky enough to know many of Keats' thoughts in these final years, thanks to his meticulous habit of correspondence. Keats was a constant letter sender. But these were no mere check-ins or updates. They were journal-like back and forths with some of his closest friends and relatives. It is thanks to these documents that we know the dates of many of his famous works and the inspirations behind them as well. For example, we know that this poem was inspired by a simple autumn walk that made an enormous impression on him. All this he wrote in a letter to his friend John Hamilton Reynolds. In the letter he wrote, How beautiful the season is now. How fine the air. A temperate sharpness about it. Really, without joking, chaste weather, dean skies. I never liked stubble fields so much as now. Aye, better than the chilly green of the spring. Somehow a stubble plain looks warm in the same way that some pictures look warm. This struck me so much in my Sunday's walk that I composed upon it. It seems as though Keats has mustered all his considerable poetic might to do that impression justice. In the three stanzas of the poem, we see three distinct movements. Stanza one brims with life and abundance. Stanza two shows a world in which that abundance has been reaped. Finally, stanza three is facing into a bleak landscape, the time after the harvest that is left barren and empty. As they move through these three distinct images, readers will notice the feast of the senses in each one. The first is a tactile verse filled with life and a sense of growth. This is followed by sight in the second, where Keats bears witness to the majesty of the season. Then, finally, 
There is sound in the third, or rather, the absence of it. This poetry of the senses was a lifelong pursuit of Keats. Each one can be clearly felt by the reader. They are made clear, even from the very first stanza. Season of mists and mellow fruitfulness, close bosom friend of the maturing sun. Conspiring with him how to load and bless with fruit the vines that round the thatch eaves run. To bend with apples the mossed cottage trees and fill all fruit with ripeness to the core. To swell the gird and plump the hazel shells with a sweet kernel. To set budding more and still more later flowers for the bees. Until they think warm days will never cease for summer has o'erbrimmed their clammy cells. Those first few lines are surely among the most famous in all of English poetry and set the tone perfectly for autumn. They are haunting and calm all at once. There is a strong sense of the pastoral, a poem written to glorify an idyllic rural setting in this first stanza. Words like mossed cottage trees and thatch eaves only reinforce this notion. Though, while it shares the idyllic setting of a pastoral, it does elevate the subject of nature much higher than that usually quaint form. This is, in every sense, an ode to autumn. The ode is a form that Keats is renowned for. Odes seek to glorify something, and here it is nature that takes center stage. The impression that autumn walk made on him as mentioned earlier, is elevated to brand new heights of praise here. The language of abundance is laid out in every line of that first stanza. Each one has some image of growth or ubiquity contained within it. Words like load and bless, bend with apples, fill all fruit with ripeness, are seen, follow each other again and again. The scene he is painting is one of a typical autumn. To swell the gourd and plump the hazel shells, there is a cornucopia of agriculture and produce laid out for the reader. The glory of the harvest is made clear. Keats is meticulous in his illustration of this time of year, and as the poem progresses, he maintains that staunch commitment to engaging the senses. But why exactly is he doing this? In an 1817 letter to his brothers George and Tom, Keats wrote, What quality went to form a man of achievement, especially in literature, and which Shakespeare possessed so enormously? I mean, negative capability. That is, when man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching, after fact and reason. This term, negative capability, would become a cornerstone of Keats' legacy. It is a quintessentially romantic concept, the notion of giving oneself over to the sublime and mysterious in their work. It was very appealing to that generation of artists. It was to make a pure attempt at documenting what is experienced through the senses without rationalization. This was something that became an obsession of sorts for Keats. He would pursue it in his work from that point on. 
truly believing that it was the mark of a great poet to achieve it. So how did one achieve it then? For Keats, it took the form of an openness to all experience, a refusal to place judgment on anything. This removal of prejudice is akin to the removal of consciousness or ego from a work of poetry. Personal subjectivity must be abandoned. Keats believed that a poem could exist in the service of beauty, as opposed to needing a much larger theme or meaning. This is very clearly an idealistic goal, and arguably an unachievable one. However, in To Autumn, Keats' final poetic work, it's widely agreed that it's as close as he ever came to achieving it. We can see the contrary nature of negative capability play out in the second stanza. Who hath not seen thee oft amid thy store? Sometimes whoever seeks abroad may find thee sitting careless on a granary floor. Thy hair soft lifted by the winnowing wind, or on a half-reaped furrow sound asleep. Drowsed with the fume of poppies, while thy hook spares the next swathe and all its twined flowers. And sometimes, like a gleaner thou dost keep, steady thy laden head across a brook, or by a cider press with patient look, thou watchest the last oozings, hours by hours. Keats chooses to engage his reader with a rhetorical question. Who hath not seen thee oft amid thy store? Here the poet puts a question, and so, structure and logic into his poem. But is he really addressing the audience when he says thee? The answer is no. This thee has been seen before in the poem, in the first stanza, in the second, and will be seen in the third. He is talking directly to Autumn, talking about its beauty as though it were a person. We have moved from the idyllic scenes of fields and crops to an empty granary store. Suddenly, the abundance that dominated the first stanza is nowhere to be found. Each bounty has been reaped here, and the poem takes on an almost dreamlike quality. Words like sound asleep, drowsed, and laden head are littered throughout the text, immediately putting the reader in mind of slumber. The figure he is describing, whose hair is soft lifted by the winnowing wind, has a dual meaning. On the one hand, it's a very literal image of the branches of a tree being lifted and swayed gently in the breeze. But on the other hand, he could be describing an extremely idealistic harvester. This notion of the peasant farmer working away in a kind of humble glory was a very popular image during Keats's time. Here is an excerpt from academic Liana Vardis' essay on the topic. The 18th century thus adopted a new vision of the peasant. As a labourer, he was harmless and piteous, and therefore a natural object of charity and paternalist concern. As an independent farmer, he was virtuous, hard-working, and devoted to his family. Anxious to learn and to be guided, the peasant emerged as a fitting citizen of state. By the end of the 18th century, this figure had become an emblem for mankind. This new depiction of the labourer was very much in line with the humanist ideals of the Enlightenment. 
which Keats himself was very taken with. We can see in the very elegant and beautiful way he describes this person holding the hook to reap what has been sown, that Keats is elevating the labourer as well as autumn. A slowing down of sorts takes place in this second stanza, a slowing down all the way to stillness. It is a mood that is in sharp contrast with the vitality of the first lines we read, particularly in these lines. And sometimes, like a gleaner, thou dost keep steady thy laden head across a brook, or by a cider press with patient look, thou watchest the last oozings hours by hours. Those oozings hours by hours describe the slow decline of autumn, and simultaneously the fermentation of food and alcohol with the produce of the harvest. This was a common practice in autumn at the time, and still is today. This stilling pace draws the reader's attention, and we watch what Keats describes in a beautifully relaxed manner. Here, vision is the sense that Keats wishes to capture with negative capability. If vision is the dominant theme of this second stanza, then it is surely sound that becomes the focus in the third. Where are the songs of spring? Ay, where are they? Think not of them. Thou hast thy music too. While barred clouds bloom the soft dying day and touch the stubble plains with rosy hue, then in wailful choir the small gnats mourn among the river sallows, borne aloft, or sinking as the light wind lives or dies, and full-grown lambs loud bleat from hilly born. Hedge crickets sing, and now, with treble soft, the redbreast whistles from a garden croft, and gathering swallows titter in the skies. The rhetorical question returns once more, a hint of structure in all the beauty to refocus the reader. Once again, he is asking a question of the autumn, where are the songs of spring? He then tells it to ignore it, that thou hast thy music too. In the previous stanza, Keats has described an emptied landscape. Now he describes a silent one. Here, the depths of autumn seize the pastoral landscape. Barred clouds bloom the soft dying day. Show us the shorter days and low golden light synonymous with the season. Whilst all the flora has been turned a rosy hue, then, Without warning, we are reminded that autumn's a time of dying. There is a wailful choir of small gnats mourning, their time on this earth drawing to a close. Things we assume are eternal are cursed with a strange mortality, as even the light wind lives or dies. And yet, in response to this approaching winter, life seems to rally in the final lines and we are left with a truly hopeful image. And full-grown lambs loud bleat from hilly-born, hedge crickets sing, and now, with treble soft, the red-breast whistles from a garden croft, and gathering swallows twitter in the skies. Each tiny sound in that still landscape is a small act of rebellion, a reminder that autumn is not the end 
but rather a stage. Lambs have reached maturity, not unlike the sun of the first few lines. The call of the two types of birds in the final lines is an oddly soothing image on which to close. It brims with the promise of something better. This poem can be seen as a cyclical one thanks to these lines. We began with abundance, saw it diminish, and now see it hinted at once more. In a way, it mimics the natural cycle of the seasons and is a reassurance that, no matter what might be reaped, life will continue as it always has. So, why this poem? Keats is one of my all-time favourite poets, and I've been enraptured by those opening lines ever since I first read them. I don't think that anything revealed in this episode is new information. This is one of the most anthologized poems of all time. With that being said, I feel romantic poetry always benefits from a closer reading, not to mention being read out loud. As this is Keats' final poem, it is difficult to resist the temptation to view it as a swan song, a final bow of sorts. As I said, Keats would be dead two years after its publication, having finally succumbed to consumption. It's certainly not difficult to read the work as a man facing the end of his life and confronting his own mortality. Why else would he focus with such intensity on the fading and reaping of life? Why would Keats choose such morbid language in the final stanza if not to deal with the theme of death? His letters do not support this reading. In one of his correspondences, it was disclosed that in 1820, when returning home from a social event with a friend, Keats coughed up a great amount of blood and, due to his medical training, deemed it to be arterial blood and so knew that death would soon be upon him. With this in mind, the poem cannot be a swan song, as Keats was not even aware he was dying at the time of writing. Perhaps we could be romantic and imagine that he had some kind of premonition or lingering awareness of tragedy just around the corner. But without that, we can simply say that it is a reflection on the beauty of nature, one that would make any reader appreciate autumn. It is a wonderful reminder that as the nights grow long and the winds a little colder, there is still a bounty of beauty to behold in a season that is often considered gloomy. It is a work of stunning beauty that truly captures what autumn continues to bring to the world each year, and it slows us down just enough to appreciate it. What did you think of the poem? If you'd like to talk to me about it, or if you'd like to suggest something for this podcast, you can get in touch with me in a number of ways. Send me an email at wordsthatburnpodcast at gmail.com. You can check out my website, www.wordsthatburnpodcast.com. If neither of those suit you, you can check out Instagram at wordsthatburnpodcast, where you'll find helpful study guides and bonus material. If you would like to see any of the research that went into this podcast, you can check out my show notes through my website or click the link to Substack below. 
If you enjoyed this episode, if you know any huge Keats fans, my podcast would really benefit from either a review or you sending it directly to them. This episode was produced by me, Benjamin Colopy. The music in this week's episode was was created by Sergei Cheremizanov and is used under Creative Commons license. I really appreciate you taking time out of your week to listen to me. And hopefully, you'll hear from me again soon.